Hello, Brave UXer. Just a quick heads up from me. This episode's conversation is about domestic violence, technology's role in enabling it, and how we can prevent that from happening. If you are a survivor, the following content may be distressing, and you might want to sit this one out. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Eva Penzi-Moog. Eva is the founder of the Inclusive Safety Project and the author of Design for Safety, a brand new book that shows designers how they can prevent their work from being weaponized for interpersonal harm and in doing so, protect and empower the most vulnerable amongst us. Alongside her consulting practice, Eva is a principal designer at Eighth Flight, a leading Chicago-based software design and development agency. There, Eva designs products and consults on safe design strategy. Before becoming a tech designer, Eva worked at City Year, a not-for-profit that aims to improve education outcomes for disadvantaged groups by addressing systemic inequities. Eva also volunteered as a domestic violence educator and rape crisis counsellor, where she would spend time with survivors of sexual assault in emergency rooms, making sure that they felt supported and understood their options, while advocating for their positive treatment by medical and law enforcement professionals. Her first conference talk, Designing Against Domestic Violence, a purposeful and provocative look at the prevalence of domestic violence and technology's role in enabling that violence, has moved and informed audiences across the world. Eva's second talk, Justice, Safety, Compassion, Contributing to the Ethical Tech Paradigm, is now available on 8th Light's YouTube channel. And now it's my pleasure to welcome Eva to have what will surely be a hugely brave conversation on Brave UX with me today. Eva, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And thanks for your patience with me during the intro while we had to re-record several times me saying (laughs) eighth light, which I've now got down, hopefully for the rest of the conversation. No worries. Look, aside from hanging out with your dog Hamlet and your new kitten Reptar. I also understand that you're a big fan of zombies. What is the most exciting zombie-related news that you've heard lately? The most exciting zombie-related news? You know, it's not positive news, but there's like COVID in the deer population where I live. And according to something I read, there are some zombie-like symptoms in the deer. And apparently this, it's been associated with other diseases as well. Um, So like I said, it's not positive. Exciting implies maybe something good. So I'm I'm saying it in the using the more negative uh, sense of the word. (laughs) But it was like, it's, it was, it's always interesting to see the word zombie in like a legitimate news article. 
Yes, it is. It is. It's usually the realm of uh, of sort of science fiction and movies. So a bit distressing for the deer. I really hope that it, it, yeah. the uh, the COVID disease doesn't spread across species. I know earlier on in the pandemic they were saying it might have spread to dogs and cats, but I'm not, I haven't really caught up on any more animal news. Yeah, I think it can. I think it can spread to them. Mm. Yeah. Well, we can so sad. They don't deserve our... that. No, and it's another reason, I mean, I don't know your views, but another reason from my way of looking at it, why people should get double vaccinated and try and prevent that from happening. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Everyone who can should get vaccinated. While we're on the topic of zombies, before we we move on to other topics that we need to discuss today, favorite zombie movie? Ooh, that's a good question. Probably World War Z uh, Mm. with Brad Pitt, that one. It's, I've rewatched it maybe every six months. And the book is also really, really wonderful. It's very, very different from the movie. Um, but that's probably also my favorite zombie novel as well. I actually had to look at my favorite zombie movie as, pa- as part of this. I thought I can't really ask you that question without knowing what mine is. Yeah, what's yours? Back- well, thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a leading uh, question there or lead up to that, wasn't it? Uh, mine's 28 Days Later. And- oh, yeah. Yeah, Brit- a British. I think it's a British one. I'm not sure. It's probably it is, a, yeah. a global crew. But the the thing that disturbed me the most about it wasn't the content. It was actually the fact that I realized it was released in 2002 and just how old I am now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Matt, that's such a good one. That also holds up. I, I rewatched that one recently. That The zombies in that one are especially good, I feel. They're really fast, yeah. scary Yeah, ones. really fast. Yeah. yeah, it's a very terrifying yeah. movie. Hopefully not quite as uh, terrifying as the the road to design, but there are many roads to design that people take, and your road has certainly been one of the more interesting ones that I've come across. I noticed that you didn't study design. You actually studied, studied English and linguistics, and you also didn't start your working life, as I mentioned in your introduction, in design either. How does one go from an operations role at City Year to designer at Eighth Flight? You know, that looks to me to be quite a leap. Yeah, well, so you're right. I did not study design in a formal sense. Um, I did a boot camp called General Assembly, which I think is global, and did that boot camp. It's like 10 very intense weeks, and then was luckily and lucky enough to get an apprenticeship role at Eighth Light, which is really great for like very junior level people. And it kind of upskills those folks um, into a junior role. And then I've been there ever since. So yeah, it's definitely the boot camp and the apprenticeship are kind of how I made that leap. Now, I know boot camps are a hot topic and I don't necessarily want us to spend heaps of time on boot camps, but I am curious just for those people that might be listening that are considering getting into the industry. You are obviously quite a success story who's come out of a boot camp. What was the boot camp that you did? It was called General Assembly, the Mm. User Experience Design Immersive, and it was a really great program. And I do get asked about boot camps a lot. A lot of people are still very interested in transitioning careers, and obviously I understand the appeal. And my advice is always to try to find students who have recently graduated from the boot camps that you're looking into to talk to them, because I think a lot of it has to do with the instructors and if you can figure out who they are and how the experience has been with the previous cohort you're going to be able to figure out if it's worth it or not. Yeah, that's really good advice. You, you mentioned that you're still at 8th Flight and that's where you started. And I had a look into the company and it certainly seems like they have a good heart as far as companies go and they have a very uh, good approach to their internships. They're all paid and clearly it's worked out pretty well for you. You've, you've gone from intern to principal designer in just three short years 
boot camp's one thing, right? That's obviously going to provide you with some skills, but that's not the whole picture. What is it about you that's enabled you to develop your career so quickly in the way that you have? Well, I, I do want to go back to the apprenticeship because it is, I think, such an important factor. Mine was, I think, four months long. Um, I think they've standardized them now. Most people have a six-month-long apprenticeship who are coming you know, out of a boot camp or CS degree or whatever, um, like the very junior people. It's a six-month program, and it's, it is such an important thing because there are so many people who have that talent and that desire to be a really good designer or software developer. Um, and I'm sure you know, you've seen this and everyone has seen that there's just like such a lack of junior roles out there right now, but there's so much demand for the mid and senior level people. And it's kind of funny to see that problem, like people having, putting in so much work to get those, those more senior people and kind of ignoring this huge amount of juniors who are really, really eager and really excited to get into the industry and just trying so hard. Whereas at Aethlight, I mean, we do hire a lot of seniors. That's definitely a thing that we're also doing, but we also, and it's a priority, but I suppose it's maybe feels less urgent or we don't need to be as worried about it because we're also really good at taking junior folks and upskilling them through the apprenticeship. So it's just, it's funny to see the emphasis on seniors and then people kind of refusing to try to take on juniors and upskill them in that way when that's also a very feasible way to get your your mid-level and your senior people is to kind of train them through the company instead of competing so hard with everyone else for the small amount of talent that's out there. So anyway, that's a whole different conversation. But but yeah, so the apprenticeship was definitely a huge part of it. I had a really great mentor who worked with me a lot one-on-one, and that just was such a huge amount of growth really quickly. Other than that, um, to actually answer your question, well, in terms of the sort of my book and the conference talk, like I just really care about the subject, I guess. So I I have put in like a huge amount of hours outside of work hours and definitely gotten burnt out a few times and had to recover. Um, so I'm like learning how to do this work without burning out now, but I don't want to lie and pretend like I was able to have a good balance during a lot of this time because a lot of it, a lot of it was just like a lot, a lot of time, but I really cared about it. And now I'm learning how to make it a little more sustainable and manageable because you can't do that forever. But that was, that was definitely part of it. I think you're you're right. Just coming back to what you were saying about the internships and the developing of junior talent, it is sad to see that the industry seems to be placing more emphasis on hiring people that already have skills rather than taking the time to develop that talent. And it's happening globally. You know, I was talking with Jane Jane Austen, who runs the experience practice at Digitas in the UK recently. I was also talking with someone in New Zealand here, Ruth Brown, who is a senior UXer, and the same the same patterns are, are everywhere. I do see a future that. Uh, doesn't look that rosy in terms of well, what does design look like in ten years' time if we if we continue down this track and don't develop that talent? And mm-hmm. just to come back to your your uh, the topic of burnout, I think that's and a hugely important thing to to touch on and to try and get some more balance. And looking back at your work life, I did notice that about six months before you started at Eighth Light, you stopped working as a volunteer domestic violence counsellor uh, and rape crisis counsellor, educator and rape crisis counsellor. And from the outside in, that seemed to me around that time, and this is just looking at a LinkedIn timeline, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you were making some serious decisions around that time of your life and making some significant changes. I can't imagine what it's like being in an emergency room with someone who's just suffered um, sexual violence and being so close to pain and trauma like that. Was the nature of your work in that volunteer role taking 
too much of a personal toll? Yeah, well, it definitely was really intense, especially certain situations were more intense than others. And it was, I don't want to call it like difficult. It was a lot. It was like hugely, I think it's really important work and it's hugely impactful. Yeah. Around that time was when I was like figuring out this career change. And before I did the boot camp that I've been talking about, um, I did do um, half of a different boot camp, a developer boot camp, before deciding that that just wasn't like, you know, doing writing back end code wasn't quite the path I wanted to take. So that was also a time when I was figuring out like making this huge career shift. Like I, I really loved my job at City Air. It also, it gave me a lot of, like I had the mental space sort of to do this other work. And then when I started doing this boot camp, I was like, I didn't have the space anymore. So it was sort of a thing of if I don't have the capacity to do this the right way, then I shouldn't be doing it at all type of thing. So yeah, so I stopped and then I haven't gone back to it. And I think, you know, now I'm I'm still very engaged in like, sort of immersing myself in some really intense trauma that other people experience and trying to work on ways to improve it in a different sense. So I guess it's something I kind of go back to in different ways. Yeah. Mm. What sort of boundaries do you have to put in place for yourself to enable you to spend the amount of time and energy in this subject area that you do? That's a great question. I do have a lot of boundaries around things. I don't watch a lot of like TV shows or movies that have depictions of sexual assault or domestic violence, unless it's, unless someone tells me like, okay, but this one is like really well done, like Big Little Lies. don't know if you saw that, but they had that, that first season. It's like a really, really great depiction of domestic violence where it was very realistic and sort none of the sort of like tropes or, or minimizations that happen a lot. Um, it was really well done. Um, but for the most part, like, you know, I'm, watching Seinfeld right now. Like I don't, I don't look at a lot of things that are just really dark because I, I have a lot of that just in my regular day to day. And then I also kind of limit people's, a lot of people have stories about this kind of stuff. And when they, you know, learn about my work or we're just kind of talking, they want to share something that they read or that they heard about. And if it's not like, I'm always I, and I do, I interview people about their own experiences a lot, especially in terms of the the tech facilitated domestic violence side, but sort of hearing like very, very secondhand stories about like, oh, I read this article or I use, I often will kind of say like, you know, like, let's maybe not talk about that right now. Like, feel free to send me that article and then I can read it in my own time. But let's, you know, just putting up those boundaries around. I spend so much of my life thinking about this stuff that like if I'm having a beer with a friend, it's like, let's make this one of the very few times when I'm not thinking about this. And then it's same, my partner is on this journey. Uh, he's taking med school prerequisites right now. And he does a lot of shadowing of different physicians. And he has worked, he's shadowing a doctor right now where he sees, you know, they're not always admitting to domestic violence. Sometimes the patients are, sometimes it's still very clear that there's something going on. And I told him he had to stop telling me about the different things that he's seen because it's just like, yeah, I don't, there's nothing I can do about it. And it's not useful to learn about. And it's not like I can connect with that person um, to give them any type of support. So you're just, you're going to have to find someone else to like, kind of like, I think he needs to share it and like, get it off his chest in a way. But yeah, he, he has other people that he can do for that because I can't take on any more of these, like just people doing the absolute worst things to each other than I already do. So those are some of the boundaries that I have up. 
Yeah, I can imagine that would be hugely important, particularly when this is your, again, I'm putting words in your mouth, but this seems to be a vocation, or at least it's something that you're very connected to both professionally and in the past through your volunteer work. And you've obviously written recently Design for Safety, which we'll definitely come to soon. But I'm also aware that you're the founder of the Inclusive Safety Project. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the Inclusive Safety Project is sort of this just group that I started or organization um, to kind of put all of this work that I'm doing around uh, and to give, you know, a place for volunteers to come. Um, I have some volunteers who um, are doing that talk in different countries and different sort of cultural contexts where it wouldn't be like super appropriate for like a white woman from America to be telling different groups like how they should be considering domestic violence. Eva, you've spoken about in the past the power of telling stories to help people to understand what's happening with abuse of tech in a domestic violence context. What is your story? You know, what's the moment that really opened your eyes to the depth of harm that's being facilitated through these products? Yeah, so there was um, a moment very clearly when I had finished the apprenticeship and was on one of my first clients that brought me back to the training I had done to become a rape crisis counselor. We learned a lot about domestic violence in that training. And there was one story that I remember the trainer telling us about. It was sort of, I think, her goal in telling the story was to hit home how dedicated abusers are to their abuse and how like the links that they'll go to. So the story was about a woman who had left her abuser and had gotten an apartment in like a high rise apartment building. And she felt very safe there because there was, you know, like a front desk person. She had like her list of registered guests, you know, as opposed to just like a sort of walk up or house or whatever. There was a sort of layer between her and her abuser that she felt like that would help keep him out. And the abuser had to get around this. So he found out the building she was living in and then was trying to figure out like which unit she was and trying to get access to her. And he dressed up as a sort of like delivery food delivery person. And he had like, you know, some, some food boxes in a plastic bag. He said that um, his instructions from this person were to take the food right to her door. Um, but she hadn't left a unit number and the front desk person like let him up and, you know, told him the unit number and he was able to get access to the survivor in that way. So that, yeah, right. They're like abusers are just so, they're dedicated and they're very creative. Again, not saying that in a positive way, but when it comes to their abuse, that's they're they're very can be very ingenious. So anyway, one of my clients was for a high-rise apartment building. It was sort of an app to facilitate, you know, getting repairs or different things like that, checking out party rooms. Um, and then there was the managing your list of registered guests. So then that, when I was designing that feature, that brought me back to the story from the rape crisis training. And I was like, oh, like how, like, is there an opportunity here for technology to play a more proactive role? Like what would it look like if this software recognized the realities of domestic violence and of stalking um, and of the dedication of abusers to finding their victims? Like what, what might it look like? So I came up with this concept of like an anti-guest because I was like, I think what's missing in this in this scenario with the story that I had heard in the training was that there wasn't a way formally in the software, like maybe a note somewhere, but there wasn't like a formal way to say, like this person is not on my guest list. And not only is he not on my guest list, if you see him, like you need to let me know, like possibly you need to call the police if that's something that she wants. So yeah, so I came up with this concept of an anti-guest for someone to be able to like have a sort of more 
much more formal ability to sort of communicate with the front desk people about the situation and for the technology to recognize these realities in a formal way and not a sort of like workaround such as like a note or something about the situation. So that was that was sort of the first like aha moment that technology had this role to play. And what was that conversation like? How was it received when you, when you came up with this anti-guest feature? Um, it was very awkward. And even like I was working with one of my closest friends was on, was the other designer sort of working with me and even just talking with him about it. It was very, it was just very awkward. And he was, you know, he was into it. He was like, yeah, that's, that's important, but it was still just weird to bring it up. And that's something I talk about um, when people like advice for people who are going to bring this up in their workplaces is to just to be prepared for how awkward it's going to be. And I'm not actually sure, like we presented it to the client and then um, we had only been hired to do the designs. So he was going to like, you know, try to find some funding or something and then build it. And I'm not sure what came of it. And if, you know, if he, if he took it seriously or not, but I was kind of like, well, at least we, you know, it's in there. They have the design. We have done our due diligence, but yeah, it was awkward is the overwhelming feeling of bringing this stuff up for the first time. Yeah, and incredibly brave. And I want to come to something soon that you said, which was to do with technologists and the happy path and how we focus most of our efforts on that happy path. But before we do that, uh, I think we should get maybe a little bit uncomfortable uh, for, well, certainly myself and certainly for, I can imagine, some of the other people that are going to be listening to this episode and just set the scene for the rest of the conversation in terms of domestic violence and what that is what that looks like. Um, it's such a serious topic that I feel that jumping straight into some of the practicalities of how we can design for it or to stop it from happening uh, would be inappropriate. So just for people so that there are a sort of no gaps in context, what is domestic violence and what are some of the common ways that it shows up? Yeah, so domestic violence is the physical, sexual psychological, emotional, and financial abuse of someone in a domestic context. Um, usually we're talking about intimate partner violence when we say the term domestic violence, um, which, you know, between intimate partners, current intimate partners, also former intimate partners. And then domestic violence, you know, more broadly also includes anyone in your domestic space. So family members, roommates, anyone who is like in the home with you. And is this just an issue for, for women? Is domestic violence something that just impacts women? That's a great question. The answer is resoundingly no. In the US, the statistic is that it's one in three women and one in four men who will experience severe physical domestic violence at some point in their lives. And, you know, I just want to also emphasize that domestic violence is so much more than just physical, and there doesn't have to be a physical component for it to, you know, quote unquote, count as domestic violence. I get that sort of question or thought a lot about like, well, does this really count, especially with the technology side? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. It counts. It meets the definition. Um, and any sort of advocate or expert in the space would say that it counts, even if there's not, you know, something physical or something sexual or something that is very, like would be very evident to anyone on the outside, it still counts. And the other statistic I can share. So in the US, three women um, are murdered each day by a current or former intimate partner. The statistic each for day. us, yes, each day. Each day. Um, 
Yes. The statistic for Australia is one woman is murdered every week. And that's also the statistic for Canada, which is still way too much. It's a lot less than three a day, which has a lot to do with access to guns and you know America's obsession with, with guns and the fact that abusers, there are very few places where someone who has been convicted of domestic violence, you know, they can still have guns. And so it's, that's a, that's a big issue, but yeah, there's, it's such a huge cause of like just death. And there's also so many other impacts in terms of just what it does to people um, in terms of like financially, in terms of their careers, and then in terms of obviously their mental health and, and their general well-being. it's a huge, huge impact and a very, very common problem that, you know, we it's very convenient to pretend doesn't exist. And a lot of people don't talk about it for very good reasons because they are very shamed when they talk about it. So there's sort of all these different things that make it just extremely common, but also very hidden. Yeah, it's very much swept under the rug. I actually looked into New Zealand statistics with regards to um, murders by intimate partners. And it's one woman a month in New Zealand, which is a country of 5 million people that is murdered at the hands of their intimate partner, 12 women a year. And that's an average of 15, that's a 15% of the total average of annualized murders in this country of New Zealand. So mm. that is a huge and shocking statistic. Mm-hmm. And something else in terms of statistics that I've heard you talk about, Eva, is the propensity for women who stay in abusive relationships to be murdered by their mm-hmm. intimate partner or former intimate partner after they find the, uh, the the ways and the means to actually leave that person. You know, what is that? What is that propensity? What does that look like? What factor are they more likely to to suffer murder or death from after leaving their partner? Yeah, I, I so that's a great thing to bring up. I believe the statistic is eighty nine. You're like eighty. No, you're eighty times more likely to be murdered um, in the few weeks after leaving an abuser than at any other point, and that has everything to do with the fact that domestic violence is all about power and control. And when you have left the abuser, they are faced with you know losing all of that power and control that they had over that person. And murdering someone is sort of the ultimate way to regain power and control over that person. So. Yeah, we do see that it's it's far and away the most dangerous time. And this is something I talk about in the book in terms of technology facilitated stalking and location data issues is because, you know, we do know of domestic violence homicides that are linked to technology and to an abuser finding out their uh, victim's location through some type of technical means. So this, you know, it literally is life and death a lot of times, these these things we're talking about. And that that factor of eighty that you've just spoken about is tied back in, particularly in the U.S., with three women a day losing their life in this way to the access to handguns and other forms of of firearms. I was just going to say that we we can't really talk about domestic violence, especially domestic homicide, at, at least in the U.S., without also talking about the the gun crisis. And it is a crisis, um, and it's absolutely the reason, or a huge part of the reason, why it's so much worse here and so much more dangerous for women in domestic violence contexts than it is um, in almost any other place in the world. There's actually one more statistic that is completely repugnant and it's probably going to shock everybody, I would imagine, that's listening to this. What's the number one cause of death of pregnant women in the United States? It is domestic homicide. 
Yeah. Getting murdered by your current or former intimate partner. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. That's, um, that's one that definitely gets me a lot. And I think it's, uh, it's so tough to talk about. Um, but it's really important because I think there's, well, there's lots of myths around domestic violence, but, but the one that like no one would, no one would hurt their pregnant wife or girlfriend, um, or that, you know, if there is domestic violence that that's, that's when it stops. It, it, it is a myth and it's really, really tragic because the statistics show us that domestic violence that is already present in a relationship actually increases during pregnancy for the most part. And that there are in other cases, you know, relationships where there is no domestic violence, it can start for the first time during pregnancy. And, you know, this sort of goes back to the, the thing I was talking about earlier with power and control in terms of domestic homicide in general, pregnancy represents a time when a lot of things are out of, you know, both, both people's control, you know, the person's body is changing. There's a lot more attention being paid by healthcare professionals. You know, if there's ever been a social worker involved or some other, you know, person involved due to the domestic violence, they're going to be a lot more anxious to be, to be involved during pregnancy for obvious reasons. So there is this, again, sort of loss of power and control for the abuser that they reclaim through through violence and through murder. And that is just like, ugh, it's just such a tragic, such a tragic reality of this whole thing. Yeah, I literally, I, I, I don't really have any words to share. You know, women in particular have had to endure domestic violence since what I assume is the beginning of time. Do you see a future when women will no longer have to worry about this at the hands of their intimate partner, you know, where we can actually close this dark and prolonged chapter of human history. Wow. I've actually never been asked a question like this. I think it's possible. I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetimes for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I do want to just call out that it's also certainly something that men face. It is, it looks very different for men and men are also, you know, sort of more likely to be abused by other men um, in their domestic spaces. So this is really, I think it's more of a, an issue for humanity. Obviously women face the most severe impacts of it overall. I feel, you know, I don't know. I think, sorry, this is, this is just a really good question. I do think it's possible. And there are, you know, every time that like women get more autonomy over, over their bodies, over their careers, over their earnings, they become that much more empowered to be able to walk away from abusers who they might have been dependent on. Something though that does stress me out a lot, well, so the climate emergency, it stresses me out for a lot of reasons, but particularly one of the reasons that it worries me is the domestic violence side and just the fact that we see so much more, we see such an increase in sexual and domestic violence in like natural disaster areas. Like after there's been mm -hmm. some type of weather event, things get a lot worse. And, you know, part of the climate emergency is the increase in these severe weather events and that those are linked to a big increase in violence. So that's something that really worries me and I think gets a little bit overlooked in when we talk about the climate. I mean, there are so many good reasons to care about it, like being able to continue to live on this planet as a species, but that's a big one where it's sort of like all the, you know, politicians who say that they really care about children or babies or whatever. It's kind of like, well, do you, if you actually cared about them, you would be more worried about the climate emergency because it 
all the factors lend themselves to make a really dangerous environment for people who are already vulnerable, which is more likely to be women and children. So, so yeah, so that, that does worry me, but I think there is a lot of, you know, every time we get more gains in our ability to be autonomous, we get a little closer to a world without domestic violence. Yeah. There's actually another uh, a context where domestic violence has flared up recently. And that's been in the context of lockdowns to try and prevent the spread of COVID-19, which by and large I am for, uh, but there has definitely been a, a hidden price paid by people in the home of being restricted in your ability to move about as you would have before the pandemic. And I also understand in the US that you've recently had some interesting legal decisions around a woman's right to her body in certain states. So hopefully this isn't symptomatic of a regression in social liberties and rights for, for women. God, yeah, I hope, I hope not. You know, we've been speaking about domestic violence in all the contexts you mentioned, you know, the physical, the emotional, the, the sexual, the financial, uh, the the most extreme examples are obviously where people lose their lives and um, and are also uh, assaulted and those can be obvious uh, because they can those those impacts are physically evident to people but just because this is so widespread I wanted to ask you about whether there are any clues that people can look for if they are considering a new relationship or are in a new relationship that their partners might be abusers or predisposed to that type of behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. And something that's really important, I think, to keep in mind is people don't start abusing on the first date because, you know, you can you can just leave. What they do is they start off, usually they're very charming, like unusually charming, and then, you know, sort of build up, uh, you know, affection and dependency with their partner over time, and then sort of increase their controlling and abusive behaviors little by little and um, until it gets to the point where it's, you know, physically violent. And then, you know, people often say things like, I just like, don't know how this happened. Like, it's, it's often, you know, the last people you would expect, like, there's no, there's no sort of like one profile of a survivor of domestic violence. It's lots of people who are very just, you know, smart, like very independent people um, who you wouldn't think would fall prey to that, but it's because it happens over time and it happens very gradually. So to answer your question, some of the sort of early warning signs, and there are a lot, and there's, there's a whole list online. If anyone listening wants to Google what those early warning signs are, um, I'm, there's a whole bunch that I won't have time to cover, but a big one that I've noticed is the sort of withdrawing the person away from their communities of support. Because, you know, if you're very close with your family and you have very close friends and, you know, your friends at work, um, all these people who might notice if you like have a bruise on your arm or if you, you know, don't have access to your money and are suddenly like not, not going out after work or whatever it is, that makes it a lot harder for the abuser to continue their abuse. And it's, it's a, it's a form of, like not having control over that person if they have a strong community of support. So isolating people away from their communities is a really big one that often sort of preludes a lot of other things and is also, I think, one of the ways that, you know, we can like be aware of our loved ones. Like if suddenly they, you know, like 
aren't seeing us or, you know, sometimes like I have a friend who um, is a survivor and like, we kind of realized this was happening like together in a lot of ways. And she said, like, we talked on the phone and she said, do you think that I call you too much? Because my boyfriend says that I, I call my friends too much and that I rely on them too much and that I should just be relying on him. And like that, do you think that's true? Like, do I annoy you? Like he had been saying that, you know, she was a burden to her friends basically. And when she said that, I was like, Oh, Oh God, like, Oh no. Mm. Um, that's yeah and and then yeah and it's sure enough like he had all these other controlling things that he was doing that she hadn't talked about because you know a lot of times it's like embarrassing and well there's lots of really good reasons why people don't um, share a lot of this stuff explicitly but I think anything like that is a really really big one in terms of just cluing you in that maybe there's something going on here and that you should I have a little script that I um, give to people which is like you know, maybe this is nothing and it's probably fine, but this is just setting off like some alarm bells in my mind because that's just a really common factor in domestic abuse. And like, it seems a little controlling and it seems like maybe he doesn't want you to have support from people, which is, which is, you know, associated with domestic abuse. Like, is there, is there like anything else that he's done that, that you feel like has been controlling and just kind of opening up the conversation in that way and not making assumptions, not telling someone, Hey, you're being abused. Like you never want to do that. You want people to sort of be able to identify it themselves. And, um, and And I noticed that you use the term, it seems like, which I think is, is an incredibly important part to pull out of the way that you frame that because that also gives the person the opportunity to say, no, that's not correct. That rather than making a, a strict statement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They have to be able to identify it themselves if it is happening and which, you know, maybe it's not like, I feel like it usually is in these cases, but again, the person sort of has to define that for themselves. And your work is often centered around or has been centered around technology's role in enabling this abuse. So let's turn our focus to technology now and what that might look like when that shows up. You've said that, and I'm going to quote now, quote you now, technologists will often use the term happy path to describe their focus on building a product for its intended uses and often deprioritize and defer work on edge cases to be addressed well after launch, if ever. How is the technology the products that we who are listening to this are working on, how are they being weaponized to enable domestic violence like this to happen? Yeah, so they're being weaponized in a lot of different ways. In the book, I have sort of these like four main buckets of ways that technology is being weaponized for harm. So there's issues with um, shared accounts and just sort of like accounts in general and sort of like control issues within that. That's a really, really big one. There's location harms. So like I was saying earlier, you know, the the need for people to be able to keep their location private in certain contexts. There's surveillance, which is, you know, so much more than just just cameras or like, you know, the sort of stalkerware, like secret surveillance software. There's lots of much um, more insidious ways that surveillance shows up. And then the sort of one of the like newer, more emerging spaces is internet of things or smart home devices and how those lend themselves to, to, to some of the other ones. So things like surveillance and then, but also, you know, forms of abuse such as um, harassment and tormenting through the devices, controlling someone's 
life in a lot of ways. And then gaslighting is a really big one where you convince someone that that they're, you know, essentially losing their mind and that they can't trust their own experiences because like, of course, the heat, you know, of course, I'm not changing the heat on you while you're home alone. You know, that's happening or you're or you're actually doing that or um, you're setting up the device wrong. There's so many opportunities to sort of mess with people's heads and abusers are exploiting those because like I said earlier, they're extremely creative and ingenious with this stuff. So they see these opportunities and they take them immediately. You used an example in one of the talks that I listened to where a partner was away for the week or the weekend and was dialing in to the doorbell and ringing the doorbell and his partner would go and answer the door and nobody would be there. And you mentioned turning up the temperature is another example of that type of behavior. And the gaslighting, that, that's a term that comes up often. But just so that people, uh, most people will probably understand that, but just, just in case, what is gaslighting? Yeah, gaslighting is when you make someone question their own reality and make them feel like they cannot rely on their own experiences and memories, that they're unreliable, and that actually the only person that they can rely on to have like proper view of reality is the abuser. Mm. So this is all tied into this control and power and, and isolating people from other people and from their own sense of self. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I don't trust myself and my own realities, if I feel like I'm sort of losing my mind and I need my partner to sort of tell me what's actually happening, that's a huge amount of control that they have now over you. You know, why is this an issue for designers to address? Can't we just place the responsibility for ensuring safety onto our users you know after all they are adults and presumably they have some agency over how they live their lives yeah that's a really great question and i'll answer by talking about cars and the fact that you know this was the the exact same sort of argument was being had by cars in the 50s and 60s when there were you know very few safety requirements there was no government agency um, that was you know sort of mandating that cars be safe and there were a ton of people dying preventable deaths in car crashes there were no seatbelts. tire pressure was calibrated for comfort rather than safety like there were so many different problems and rather than the auto industry, rather than saying, yeah, we could design our cars to be safer, what they did was they put it off on the users and they said, you know, you need to learn to be a better driver. And, you know, also maybe the people who make the roads could design the roads to be safer. So, you know, but very much putting putting the emphasis on this is an issue of user education and they need to sort of figure this out and learn how to not like kill and hurt each other with the devices that we have sold to them. And I think it's the exact same with technologists right now where um, the leaders of our big tech companies are doing the exact same thing. They're saying, we just provide the tools and how you use them is on you. And it's a matter of user education to sort of find out how these are going to harm you and then prevent that from happening. And it's, it's such a lot of onus to put on people to sort of learn all these different things. You know, I learn and think about this type of stuff full time. Um, well, not quite full time, almost full time. And like, I still don't know everything there is to know about how people can use tech to harm each other. So to put this on sort of everyday people is extremely disingenuous. And I think I think people know that. And it's it's very much a tactic. I mean, we've seen powerful industries do this over and over again, like, you know, same with the tobacco industry, like, there's so many different examples where they've sort of put this 
put this responsibility on users to magically not be harmed with harmful products. So it sounds like you don't think that we can expect big tech and and other companies producing these products to proactively make the best design decisions for safety without incentives to do so or regulations. Yes, I do think that. I think most of the big tech companies have sort of already shown that they're not interested in designing safe products um, or, you know, in user safety and well-being. And we've, we have a lot of data to kind of support that fact that, you know, they have, they have chosen not to self-regulate. They've chosen their profits over our safety and it's not going to change until governments step in just like with the auto industry. You know, there was, even when, you know, sort of public opinion was starting to turn against the auto industry, there was still no change. The only thing that actually got them to change were government regulations. And so we've, we've kind of seen this before and, and we already know that they're not self-regulating. So the only thing that's going to change is when governments force them to. Yeah. And that, look, the nature of your work can make people feel uncomfortable and you've been very vocal in calling out the the worst products and companies behind those products in the past, which I imagine may have got the attention of some pretty powerful people. You are, from my way of looking at it, actively exposing the cracks in our rose-tinted glasses when it comes to technology and the products that we make. What kind of pushback, if any, have you had from industry so far? So that's a really good question. I So from people who have read my book and, you know, sort of the people who follow me on Twitter and different things, I've had really, really positive reception for this work, which has been really great. I have more recently started to do some sort of internal talks and workshops with different companies, which has been really great. It's amazing when someone at a big company, you know, reads my book or hears about the work and says, like, I want to bring this, you know, into everyone in my team. Like, can you come and do a talk or workshop with us? Um, that's such a great thing. I have found it's been interesting to see that, you know, once I'm in that space, there are people who did not opt into the whole conversation, essentially the way that people who have like bought my book or usually are interacting with me in some way, like they're like at my conference talk or they're like on my Twitter, they've, they're bought in already, you know, and, and we have good discussions about different things and might debate like a way forward, but they're ultimately we're all on the same page. Whereas in these spaces, like obviously the, the sort of people who brought me in are very much bought in, but I have had some people who sort of push back on like the entire concept of my work in general, um, saying like, it's, you know, it's not our job to be responsible for this type of thing. And it's just way too much to be thinking about like how someone might, you know, misuse it. And it's been, it's been a little eye-opening and very clarifying in a way to remember like, after a few months of nonstop, like, this is great, we're going to make changes, this is so important. And then to be sort of come back to the people who are like, I don't think so, like, I don't care, has been like very clarifying because... What is that like when you face that criticism? Um, it's yeah. frustrating. It's really frustrating, especially because most times I can't actually respond to an actual individual and have a discussion with them. It's something that comes in like a feedback form, you know, that I see afterwards. So it's really frustrating, but it's also it like, you know, going back to the conversation about regulation, it makes me, it like re-motivates me to the fact that we need, we need like mandated change in this space and that we can we can make a lot of difference as individuals and as teams but there are these people out there who are 
who are just going to say, no, like not my problem, not my job. And those people exist and they're not, you know, some people will only change their behavior when they're forced to. So, so it's been a good reminder that we do need these like bigger systems level changes to like ultimately achieve safe tech. So thinking about the the role of the person that is inviting you into the organization to do a workshop, to talk about the book, to try and establish design for safety with them, who is it in, in a large organization that should really be responsible for ensuring the products and services that are being made are designed safely? Sorry, your question is who who's responsible at the organization for designing yeah. safely? If something goes wrong, if a product is used by an abuser to do something that arguably they shouldn't have been able to have done or easily facilitated through that product, who should face the music? In my opinion, it should be the leader of that company because they're the one who, you know, ultimately is responsible for their product and for the impacts. And, you know, a lot of people, I get this question every single training I do, people ask, how can I convince like the more powerful people that we need like time um, and resources to do this work, like every single space I'm in, like people ask that question because they're faced with stakeholders and managers and bosses who say like, well, you know, we don't have time for that or it's not important enough or it's an edge case or, you know, whatever excuse they're going to use. And I think ultimately like the responsibility has to be on the company leaders because they're the ones who are setting the tone. They're the ones who are saying yes and approving budgets. So I think ultimately they're responsible. What does it say about company leadership if they're not open to having this conversation and investing in making their products safe? Well, it says a lot of things. It's a, I mean, couple thoughts, I guess. It says maybe they're not ready for this. It is, you know, it's such a heavy topic and it's, it's sort of different from a lot of other things that we try to convince people on, I think, because it can be personal. People might have, there's so many different reasons why someone might not want to engage with it in the first place. So I don't just, you know, I'm not just going to say like, oh, well, like they're a bad person or something because there there's lots of nuance here. But I do think that when it comes to a product that is influencing other people's lives we do have a responsibility to kind of get past whatever hangups we have about it and empower our teams to to design for safety. And then, you know, my other thought is I think some people are just motivated by profit and don't care about their users. I mean, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg cares about the people who are using Facebook. Like maybe he did at one point, or maybe he just had a really interesting idea that has now made him a bunch of money and he's just going to keep keep going and he has a bunch of power. I don't know. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg personally. To me, it seems there's a whole lot of data that shows that he does not care about his users and very little data to, to sort of back up an idea that he does care about his users. So that's sort of my thought on company leaders who refuse to engage with this type of work. Your book gives some really great practical ways that people can start to adapt their existing design process or the way in which they're designing to be more mindful of the needs of their most vulnerable users. In the book, you talk about creating archetypes of the abuser and also of the abused. What is an archetype and how are you recommending that people use an archetype to shape the design of their products and services? Yeah, so an archetype is um, sort of visually at least similar to a persona, except it's not really based on 
real people that you've sort of come across and interviewed? I mean, it could be, um, but more realistically, it's based off of um, other sorts of research that you've done. So articles that you found about, let's say it's, you know, you're in the IoT space and you've read about IoT device uh, abuse, and now you want to make sure that your IoT device that you're working on isn't going to be also used for abuse. So you use the sort of research that you've done to create these archetypes, which are sort of just composites of people that you've read about as opposed to, you know, personas are, you know, composites of actual people, like actual users that you've interviewed. So different in that way. And then it basically just boils down to that person's sort of context and their goals. So, you know, my context is I'm separated, you know, from my husband and he still has access to all these devices. I'm not really sure how to get control back. And I think that he's doing things with them. I think he's, you know, blasting music in the middle of the night or what have you. Um, and then the the sort of abuser archetype is the exact same with their context and goals. Like I'm separated and I'm, I'm still using the IOT devices to remind her that I am in control and that I, um, you know, can do these things to make her life difficult. And then those are sort of used to inform the further steps in the in the process for inclusive safety of brainstorming for novel abuse cases and then designing solutions to prevent or mitigate the harm that comes from the product being misused. Yeah, so these are really practical steps that people can take if they can't get through to senior leadership to get a mandate to build this in at a company level. There are definitely steps that people can take that to me, they don't sound like they're going to add a lot of extra time or, or extra energy or expense to the product design process. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does not have to be time consuming. Um, I have estimates in the little sort of graphic that I have in the book that can, that I think that are actually like definitely on the more generous side. So to help you give an estimate to your stakeholder to say like, you know, this isn't some open-ended thing. Like we want 20 hours over the next four weeks. And that might be easier for someone to say yes to. And they're also not difficult. Like none of the, none of the things are especially difficult. It's really just about taking the time and the space and doing some research and sort of having the right foundation and mental model to, to do the activities. Yeah. And a lot of people listening won't have the luxury to be working on Blue Sky products. They won't be starting from scratch. What are some of the ways that they can evaluate existing products for safety? Yeah, so so you can definitely go through the process with new features. It doesn't have to be a whole new product. And then, yeah, retrofitting for safety is definitely a huge thing. And you can essentially sort of go through the process as if it was um, a brand new product or feature that you you know, sort of conveniently already know exactly how it works because it actually already exists. And if you haven't been able to identify any like actual harms, that doesn't mean that they're not happening. It just means that no one has talked about them or that maybe you don't have an avenue for people to let you know about them. So going through the process as if it was a new product is also something that people can do to identify issues with an existing product. I wanted to come to tech and finance because banking and financial abuse in a domestic violence situation. I think you've said that 99% of all abusive relationships have an element of financial abuse. Mm -hmm. And I work with some financial institutions, and I'm sure that there are people listening that work at financial institutions or are also working with people that work there in design. That's pretty much ubiquitous in terms of the abuse that can be facilitated through those products. What specifically for those designers that are working in finance do they need to be mindful of what sort of what sort of scenarios or questions should they be asking themselves? 
Yeah. So keeping in mind, like you said, it's 99% of cases, there's an element of financial abuse and control. So just learning, that's a whole world, you know, there are so many resources on that and different things that weren't included in the book. And there's lots of information out there about what that looks like. There are whole organizations dedicated to this. So just starting to like learn about this. And then also like talking to your customer service people or to actual bankers. When I was researching for the book, I talked to a few people who said that they'd absolutely had you know, worked with couples or people who there was something going on and there was something that was putting up their alarm bells, but there's no formal process for them. Whereas uh, if you look at there's, you know, the issue of elder financial abuse is also like this common sad thing that there are, there are laws in most countries about this. And there's usually a process at a bank. If you think, if you suspect this is happening, you know, you kind of can like elevate it to someone and then it gets investigated. Um, and there's an, an actual thorough process. So I think that there's, like a lot of good models out there that we can look at. And there's also just a lot of research out there. So I, I think it almost to me feels like of all the different problems, this one feels like the lowest hanging fruit. It's just there isn't like the political will at most big banks, it seems, um, to make a change. Except Australia, which I talk about in the book, actually the big banks in Australia have like really great programs of specific numbers for people going through this to call and get support with someone who's trained on it, which is incredible. And they've had really good, well, you know, tragically, it's been very popular um, and the pilot programs have become permanent, um, but that's such an amazing thing. So there are, there are some very promising things out there in this, in this aspect. Yeah, it is great to hear that there are some steps being taken by some pretty powerful institutions like the banks in Australia. And there's no doubt that from the nature of the conversation that we've had, that this is some pretty intense subject matter for people to contend with. And it's probably not something that a lot of designers are accustomed to thinking about and doing on a daily basis. You know, we're talking about which really is the dark side of humanity here. What can teams do or the design leaders of teams do for teams that are tackling this to enable the teams to do so in a psychologically safe way is there such a is that such a thing can you actually deal with the subject in a way that is psychologically safe i think you can i think it's really important that people aren't forced you know that we have to remember the statistics that apply to our users also apply to our teams so not forcing people to engage with this if they have um, personal experience with it and also not forcing them to tell you that like, hey, I'm a survivor. Like, you know, we don't want to force people to do that in the workplace. So being very sensitive about about that. And then also remembering, like I was saying earlier, that, you know, this doesn't have to be like a time consuming thing. Like it can be something that you set aside, like, you know, in a perfect world where a stakeholder is really bought into this and it's not individuals advocating for like 20 hours that they can go through the process that I have in the book. You know, if it was something where it's like, okay, well, you know, one hour a week we spend thinking about this. And then, you know, we put in the process and we have, when we need more time, if we're launching a new feature, we do that, but, but setting aside time and then, and because when you set aside time, it's great because you have your time to think about it, but then that means that you also have permission to not think about it the rest of the time. Um, and I think that that's really important because I think a lot of people have like a low grade anxiety, just like constantly that like, how is this going to harm people or how is it not inclusive or how is it re-traumatizing or how is it not accessible? And if you put time aside to tackle those things, then you get to sort of free your mind the rest of the time from thinking about it. So that would be 
like a very ideal scenario for for a stakeholder, like team manager who wants to tackle this stuff. In design, we often talk about how we want to make people's lives better. And after 50 interviews of Brave UX, I can't think of a better way to improve the quality of life and to preserve life, like directly impact on people's ability to continue to live and live safely than designing for safety. Why are you almost a lone voice in the wilderness on this topic? That's a really good question. And I I don't think I know the answer. I will say that I think having the unique experience that I have with having worked a nonprofit, having done the rape crisis counseling, having done domestic violence education, and then coming into tech put me in a unique space to do this work. That was something, you know, when I was first doing this, that it was sort of like, am I the right person to do this? And then I sort of landed on like, well, it seems like maybe there's not a lot of people with these experiences who can do this was sort of where I landed. So, so I think maybe, maybe that's part of it, but, and there are people, you know, focusing on like the stalking side. There's some people doing great work. There's some people doing great work in academia, especially around IOT um, and other tech harm. But yeah, there's not very many people. And hopefully, hopefully there's more as more people start to learn about this. Yeah, I hope so. Are you still looking for people to do your conference talk around the world? Yes, absolutely. If you're interested in conference speaking, you don't have to have experience. No matter where you live, you can reach out. TheInclusiveSafetyProject.com has a form that you can fill out and you'll basically be handed a talk with a pretty deck that you can kind of customize to your own culture and context um, of your country and um, apply to conferences with. I understand there are some caveats to who you feel comfortable giving this talk on your behalf. Yeah, there's only one person I've ever said no to. Most people who sort of apply for this are you know, the right people who are interested, but, you know, having some type of background in domestic violence or being very interested in learning about it, because there is a lot to learn, you know, people get whole PhDs in this topic, but a lot of people kind of think they've, they've heard about it. So they know kind of how it goes. Um, But people ask very difficult questions um, after talks. So just wanting people to be prepared for that. And then, you know, feeling like they can have the right sort of sensitivity and give the topic the sort of yeah, the weight and the sensitivity that it deserves is very important. And most people, like I said, who reach out about this have all those things. And the, the, the book, Designed for Safety, it's available on a list apart. I believe it's available in ebook and also in a printed copy version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a book apart. Definitely, yeah. A book apart, sorry. Not yeah. a list apart, a book <laughs> apart. Um, re- really, really worth worthwhile getting 100% and giving it a good read and then considering how you can implement that into your design practice. I think, I can't think, as I said before, of a better way of actually making the world a better place through design. Eva, thinking about the people that will be listening today, you know, largely we'll all be a good group of people. We've got good intentions, but we might like our happy paths just a little bit too much. If you had to choose one message from our conversation today, from your body of work, design for safety that you want people of the global design and technology community to take on board, what would that be? It would be that this designing for safety and especially thinking about domestic violence and how it intersects with technology is not an edge case and that it is so common among our users. And that because of that reality, we have a huge opportunity to help keep them safe and to increase their well-being in that way. But just to 
just I would want to really hit home that this is not an edge case. It's extremely common. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you want to know just how common it is, you can go back to the earlier segment where we were talking about some of those horrifying statistics at the beginning of the conversation. Eva, it's been an incredibly eye-opening and challenging conversation to have with you today. Your work is having such a hugely important and positive impact on the field of design. Thank you for being so brave and also so generous in your contribution to our global design community. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Thanks. This has been a really great conversation. Eva, you are most welcome. If people want to find out more about you, about Design for Safety, about the Inclusive Safety Project, what's the best way for them to do that? They can go to the inclusivesafetyproject.com. I'm also on Twitter, epenzimoog, and I have my website, evapenzimoog.com, but the inclusivesafetyproject.com is probably the easiest in terms of spelling. So that would be the place to start. Perfect. Thanks, Eva. I'll be making sure that I link to all of your resources, your website, your LinkedIn profile, Twitter, everything in the show notes. And to everyone, it's been great having you here as well. As I said, everything that we've covered will be available in the show notes, including detailed chapters for our conversation today. If you've enjoyed the conversation and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe, and also if you feel that somebody else in your network would get some value from these types of conversations on Brave UX, then please pass Brave UX along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can also find my LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes, or you can head over to the spaceinbetween.co.nz. That's the spaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!